Listen, this gentleman right here is, um, you know, one of the, uh, he's a gentleman who, if you don't know him yet, you want to definitely want to know this name because he's about to be, and I'm, I'm proclaiming this now, one of our uh, leading voices on, uh, you know, just blackness, diversity, um, empowerment, just dealing with the systemic issues that plague black America and um the the majority's responsibility and role they play in what they need to do to fix it so uh i want to bring in dr donald grant jr you may have seen him on access i want to call it access hollywood but i guess it was access daily but it's all the same brand but he's been on television he's uh done some phenomenal things he's got uh books coming out um books out already as well that really uh, uh teach on these subjects so i wanted to bring him in because he is a, uh, he's going to help us deal with resetting our mindset and also just give us some empowering uh, information on how we can um, position ourselves. So, Dr. Donald, welcome to the Reset 2020 program. Awesome, man. Thank you for having me. All right. Great you. work. Absolutely. And this is another Hamptonian, another uh, HU Connect. Hey, look, we're the standard of excellence. So, you know, you better just get used to it and understand that this is what it is. All right. So listen, why go outside the circle if you don't need to? That's why I got you on here, man, because you're smart. So, <laughs> so, Donald, go ahead. And uh, I want you, because uh, I, I, I meant to print it out, but I didn't print it out. So many things going on. So I wanted to give the title of the, the book, um, the and I don't want to mess it up. So go ahead and tell us. Uh, there it is. So tell us about the book, and then I'm going to give it over to you. And just go ahead and, and, and roll with it. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, thank you for having me. I think it's wonderful what you're doing. The book, as you see here, is entitled Black Men, Intergenerational Colonial Colonialism and Behavioral Health, uh, A Noose Across Nations. And I actually wanted that subtitle, A Noose Across Nations, to be my primary title, uh, but the publisher wasn't with it. Uh, so I got it, though. Uh, and so it's research that I conducted on um, Black men. When I was doing my doctoral research early on, back in uh, 2003, I looked and I saw these common connections and I wanted to tell a story based on the statistics. And then when I began to travel the world, uh, I found that the brothers I'd be speaking with in Paris were saying the same thing. The brothers in London, Toronto, were all saying the same thing. So I did a study on black men in the US, Canada, France, and the UK um, to show how colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade have influenced the spaces in which we exist today in Euro-normative nations. Um, and they're resulting in, in what we're seeing, over-incarceration, um, disproportionate rates of substance abuse, and um, school attrition. Uh, lack of wealth indices, things like that. And so uh, it's it's great to have that research out there and have people uh, picking it up and paying attention to it so that we can structure environments that really uh, break 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 systems of oppression apart, racism, sexism, all those things. Wonderful. So what, what, what drew you here? Like, how did you end up in this space? Like, how did you end up that this was going to be your calling card, your passion, or really, you know, the work that you started doing? Yeah, I was listening to Cheryl earlier when you guys were just talking about, you know, identifying your area where, you know, it's your area of expertise. And for me, I've oftentimes been placed in spaces where I'm the only black guy in the room. Um, as a result of being the only black guy in the room and being a systems person, I was able to really take an inventory on what the gaps were and where I was experiencing individual and professional in injuries. And I said, well, we don't, we don't need to have to go through this. And I've always been a very uh, confident and outspoken person. And so I'd be the one to step up and say, hey, you know, this is a problem. Oh, well, we didn't mean that, Donald. We didn't mean that. Well, I know you didn't mean it, but let's talk about this. 
system, the systems that make it that it happen. As a clinician working in systems of foster care, homeless services, um, higher education, that there were just all these gaps that I was just able to see so brilliantly, um, like Cheryl was saying, and I just found that to be my lane. Uh, and right now there's so much need for it because I think people are just now becoming aware of all their blind spots. You know, and I, I was going to go one direction, but you just said something that I can't, um, I don't want to move past this because you talked about um, people say what they didn't mean. Uh, well, I didn't mean to be offensive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I kind of took on the, this, this posture when I first started getting involved with Facebook, I never really did a lot of, um, online chat room and thing like that. When we got Facebook, Facebook came along. Um, I started realizing that saying that, oh, I didn't mean this is not really uh, good enough. Sometimes it, it's not it, it's the onus is on you to be clear, not on the person to that you're speaking to to receive it the way that you meant it. And if you don't give it that way. So what, what I'm trying to get to is that. What do you say to those people now who, who think that we're just supposed to be like, oh, well, OK, you didn't mean it. Oh, oh OK, I see what you um, I see how you got that messed up. How do we help direct that conversation of saying, well, saying I'm sorry, sometimes it's not good enough in these situations. Well, yeah, we've been um, we, we've been trained is too strong of a word, but we've been conditioned to um, create space for uh, white fragility and for for male fragility. Um, and so when the Me Too movement was going on, you know, men would be like, oh, I'd love to tell Sally that's a beautiful dress, but I can't because that's sexual harassment. I mean, and that's just, you know, male fragility just jumping off the pages. And so what we have to do is describe the difference between intent and impact. Um, even though your intent may have been this, your impact was this. And no matter what you believe, you have to pay attention to the individual who is being impacted by your rhetoric or by your behavior or by your actions, um, because you don't get to decide how your behavior injures somebody and if it does or does not. And one of the biggest pieces we also have to remember is that all racism ain't on purpose. Um, right. the systems, the systems and structures have made it such that it's just our second language. Um, and it's not, it's not on purpose. And so when somebody tells you that you violated a rule or a clause, or if you're at the Jay-Z concert and you're sitting next to a white couple and they just start singing along, um, to Jigga, my, and you're like, yo, you can't do that. Don't you see me sitting right here? Um, and Ta-Nehisi Coates did a great talk about it the other day about it's just some things you can't do. Um, and that's a part of privilege. Fellas, it's just some things you can't do. You just can't go around grabbing butts anymore. I know back in 1991 in high school, that was a thing. Many people would do it um, and it wasn't okay then. Right. Um, but now to your point, when women say it's not okay now, it's not okay. Point blank, right, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I wanna talk, cause we, and, and there's so many different things that, that are going on and I kinda wanna just tap your brain on a bunch of different parts of them because as we deal with the COVID, uh, let's not before we get to COVID. I want to get to uh, George Floyd, and not just George Floyd, but the Black Lives Matter and the assault that we've seen on um, Black America, and specifically as a parent talking to the kids. Because you put out an awesome video uh, not too long ago of you having the conversation with your son um, and, and having the, the racism conversation. So um, people who, who parents who I'm the kind of parent that I've always share with my kids the, that those the realities of the world I've, I've i've took them to see selma when they were younger i, I felt like if the four uh, little girls were blown up in the church 
uh, those they were kids around them. They went to school. They had school friends and they had to live through that and experience that. So I've always felt like my kids aren't too young to I, I had to shield them from that. Like people live that and they should experience that. That's my personal belief. So um, you have those conversations. So you have parents who some people feel like me. Some people feel like I try to shield my kid uh, from the realities of the world as long as possible. So talk to us from your perspective on what you feel is, is the best ways to kind of breach these uh, these conversations and, and have that balance when dealing with your children. It's, it's critical. It's critical that we have these conversations. I'll start off with a little bit of research. So research demonstrates that kids begin to make decisions and engage with other kids based on race as early as four years old. There's this great study called the uh, First Hours of Racism, I think is the name of the book. And they, they study preschool kids and watch them not want to take naps to people because of the color of their skin or not want to eat lunch with kids because of the color of their skin. This is before they get to kindergarten. And so even if parents are saying it's too young to begin talking about race and culture, um, your kid is getting information and toxins from the environment because it's everywhere. And if you don't do it, you're allowing your kid to potentially injure my kid uh, because black folk and brown folk are required to talk about uh, racism and, and race because we don't have a choice because it's a part of uh, where we exist. The concern is that white people for, for, lar for the large part have not been forced to face the grounding of their cultural identity in the oppressor role. And so it makes it very challenging to have those discussions. And so uh, white people have to move beyond um, and, and really practice mindfulness to say, Listen, uh, I get that there was no white race, uh, you know, when my ancestors came to America, they were Irish, they were Polish, they were Jewish, and then suddenly they became white. And there's a reason for that. Um, and white people have to really get past that in order to have those discussions. And so when we talk about people having tough time talking to kids about race and racism, it's not usually black or brown people who are having that problem. It's usually non-black or brown people uh, who are having that problem and approach to that discussion. And it's their own fragility that they're fearing because they know when they talk about racism, they're gonna have to face some historical context by which they were severely guilty and that's gonna be challenging for them. So once they can get past the shame, it's not the most difficult conversation to have. You know, you're hitting on so many points that uh, are exactly what I, I feel and I've thought I'm just not a doctor like you, so I'm not smart enough to articulate them the way you are. Stop. <laughs> Stop. That, that shame piece that you talked about is something I see. I, what do you feel or how do you feel we should like I posted a, a post yesterday talking about this great white awakening and like here's your chance to get out of racism free, right? Here's your one get out of racism free card. Um and I said it kind of jokingly, but it's kind of serious too. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, uh when we deal with that shame, what you know, I think that a lot of white people feel ashamed, so they don't want to talk about it, they don't want to deal with it. Um, but what what do you say to them? Like how we they thought, oh, if I say this, then that means I don't want to admit that I might have racism in my family. Do you feel like just saying, okay, here it was, I'm, a, I'm sorry, and let's move forward is the best. Avoiding it is best. Like, what can we do to kind of, because I don't feel like it's our problem to fix. So what do it's we not. do to, to, to get them to the position where they can at least accept it, uh, get rid of that shame part, and move forward to, to helping without another man getting killed by a police officer uh, on his neck for nine minutes? 
that's one of the big questions of the entire world. Most of our concerns around anxiety, depression, a lot of that is grounded in shame. I'm not a psychoanalyst, but like if people who uh, really study Freud, um, they talk about shame and guilt and how that drives a lot of maladaptive um, and antisocial behaviors. And so whether we're talking about individuals who are having troubles at work or living life or being confident, um, that's oftentimes grounded in shame. And so to get past that is to really begin to practice mindfulness and move through this trajectory that I kind of call the three C's, comfort, confident, and consistent. Um, and so when we talk about our level of comfort, I ask people, how long were you able to sit with yourself in silence? A lot of people don't even realize that's not something they can do. There's always a TV on. They're always scrolling through something that's distracting. And so when we're talking about dismantling shame, whether it's as a result of historic abuse, whether it's as a result of uh, your job or decisions you've made, the first question is, do you have the ability, like literally the physical ability to sit with yourself in silence for five minutes? and just allow the thoughts to just flow through you. Um, and, and what that means is you're beginning to practice mindfulness. And my, my business is Mindful Training Solutions, and I approach every conversation, and this is from major corporations in, in the C-suite uh, with executives doing coaching down to community organizations working with foster kids to help people understand that if you don't pay attention to what your mind is telling your body as you're experiencing something, you will never be able to make change. And so being able to sit with yourself and build up the tolerability of your own anxiety of being with yourself is a skill set. Um, this summer, I, I was able to run seven miles in one run that I've never been able to do before. That's because I upped my ante from three to four to five, and then suddenly, I'm out the house and I'm running seven miles. I get home, I'm like, oh snap, I just ran seven miles. And I didn't know I could do it until I did it. Um, and so many of us have no idea that the reason why we can't sit with ourselves is because the shame and the guilt of the thoughts that pass through us that we judge. And so one of the main tenets of mindfulness is to allow a thought to pass through you without judging it and saying, wow, you know, I just thought that, and that's cool. It means something. What, what, what does it mean? I'll, I'm just going to accept that I thought. I always give the analogy when you're driving down the street and somebody cuts you off, you want to rush up to see who they are. When you pull up to them, you're like, I knew it was you, whether it's a, a ethnicity or age or gender, but you don't want to accept the fact that you're ageist and you just knew this person was going to be over 70 years old. And that's how ageism never ends because kind-hearted people don't want to acknowledge the shame of having ageist thoughts inside of a system of ageism. And so the first thing is building comfort with yourself, man. I think that we can eliminate some of that shame uh, with building that comfort, whether you're white, black, whatever, whatever it is. Um, so we got to ask people to build that comfort to be able to sit with themselves. Uh, and then if they can't do it, understand what happens when you don't. There's three reactions that we have to anxiety. It's fight, flight, or freeze. And people forget about the freeze. They oftentimes only talk about the fight or flight, um, but it's also freeze. Um, and so once you figure out what your natural response is, then you can move past it and you can create interventions and techniques to help grow your ability like you grow your ability to run or a marathon runner doesn't just wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to run 26.2 miles or whatever it is. Man, powerful, powerful stuff. 
Um, now, I do want to get to uh, one of the last topics I want to talk about is uh, what we've seen in, in this, this awakening at the um, because of what we've seen happen to George Floyd. Um, I don't want the women to get lost in this. So I know a lot of attention gets put on the men uh, who, who we lose. But, um, you know, we, we have Breonna Taylor's killers are still free right now. We have so many other women who are also victims of police violence, but also racist violence, because we, we, we don't want to forget that people like Ahmaud Arbery, he wasn't killed by police. He was killed by you know racist white people who, who felt threatened by, by him. Uh, but all of a sudden now, we've seen that I think that maybe you know mainstream America has run out of excuses to say, well, well, he did this, or well, she was doing that, or well, this person did that, and kind of you know, when you see someone on the ground for almost nine minutes, eight minutes and 46 seconds, it's like, what do you really, what can you say? So it seems like now there's been this awakening where everyone is Black Lives Matter. Everyone is um, promoting a, a, a diversity. Everyone is, is for the cause now. And while it's great and we want that, this is what we need. We needed this. We need people to wake up. I, I'd be lying if I didn't say it's all of a sudden like, well, what took so long? You know, I wasn't thinking like, what took so long? But here we are. Here we are. So how do we keep this momentum right. going without having to see more people die? That's the that's the important question. Um, and so when we look at what's happening right now, it's, it's really important to understand. You hear a lot of people saying, oh, it feels so different. It feels so different. Well. That's, that's what people were saying in 1874 and in 1876 and right after Reconstruction. So right now is the first time in the, live, in the living memory that white people are being held accountable for white supremacy, what I like to call street level racism, right? And so we've been able to stop people from allowing us to be lynched in public. That's illegal now. You just can't do that. Although um, we need to pay attention to these brothers and sisters who have been hanged around the country most recently, because I'm confident that not all those are suicides as they're being listed um, as I give that analogy. And so we look at that 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 not being legal anymore, but we had all the, the street level racism being legal. We saw the young lady in the park uh, while the brother was watching the birds. And I mean, and I don't mean a stereotype, but there, there is not a least threatening man than somebody who is studying them. Um, and for her to weaponize her power in that way um, is noteworthy. And it's noteworthy to say that this is the first time in American history that that white woman was held accountable for those actions. And so people have a reason to feel like, oh, this is different. But because I'm a historian and a mental health professional, it's important to note that right after Reconstruction, Jim Crow was sitting right around the corner. And so when we talk about how history repeats itself, the question you're asking is what do we need to do to pay attention to the roadmap that has already been presented to us and pick a different route? Um, and, and the importance is, is that we need, you said it earlier, black people can't end racism in the same way that women can't end sexism in the same way that gay people can't end homophobia. It is the problem of the dominant culture. 
Um, we need white people to stop using this ally language and move to accomplice and co-conspirator. Um, and an ally is somebody who makes a beautiful sign and goes to the Black Lives Matter march with us, right? And we appreciate allies, those are great. But allies are the reason why Jim Crow was able to take over the American South after Reconstruction, because an accomplice and a co-conspirator are white individuals who have skin in the game. So if I gave an analogy to sexism, a co-conspirator, a male co-conspirator to sexism would not be just an individual who said, oh, we need pay equity. We need to make sure that when my daughters are adults, they get pay equity and they speak about it out loud and they go to the marches. That's an ally. An accomplice and a co-conspirator is the dude who goes into his boss's office and says, I'm willing to take a 6% pay cut so we can make sure that Sally gets some equity. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we need, not our allies anymore, we, we, they're great, keep coming, but we need white identity develop to, development to move from allyship to accompliceship, where they actually have skin in the game and they're willing, to, they're willing to risk social capital, they're willing to risk physical capital in order to dismantle racism. And remember, if you're not anti-racist, you're racist. If you're not anti-sexist, you're sexist because you're participating in the implicit systems that maintain oppression. Absolutely. We're going to get you out of here on this. I'm going to ask uh, this question because um, while we're going through this fight, while we're going through uh, life, you know, we have to still we, we're constantly bombarded with these battles. So we need. But, but how do we I want you to give us something that we can use to preserve our sanity, you know, keep pushing forward, uh, <laughs> you know, to to help us. Under, we know what's going on. We don't want to disconnect totally and act like it's not happening. But there's a danger of getting totally engulfed by it as well. So what uh, maybe a tip or two to help us preserve our sanity while we live this experience, but also uh, as we're resetting for the rest of the year to help us um, accomplish uh, some more positive things for our personal lives. And then also give out your contact information. People can follow you as well. Yeah. First of all, buckle up because it's going to be a rough ride. Uh, period. There's no way around that. And so we need to understand is that as we fight our political violence against us, we got to take care of ourselves. There's a, 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 um, an effort coming out by a lot of psychologists saying, please stop showing um, the knee on the neck because that is traumatizing black people over and over and over again. Um, and so sometimes you just got to cut the TV off, right? It, it's going to be going on again tomorrow. Um, you got to find ways to empower yourself. People who can't get out and want to get out. I have an um, employee who has asthma and she has a small child. She was able to put together rescue uh, kits for marchers and she felt so proud that she was able to engage because she couldn't get out. Understand that advocacy just doesn't look one way. Many of us are feeling strained because we feel like we're not doing enough. Um, but remember, it's not just about marching in the streets. We're looking for the long game here. And we need people to invest in strategies that go the long term. Meditate, exercise. When we talk about stress building up in our bodies, um, it's cortisol, it's a chemical. And that chemical is literally released from our body through perspiration and tears. Um, so if you're watching a voice and you're watching somebody win, the, win, win their dreams of their life and you start to cry, you're like, I ain't crying over this. Let it flow because it's actually biologically reducing stress. Go for a run, do some yoga. All these things really legitimately, legitimately help. Um, and, and understand that right now we're, we are in a serious uh, concern with race and racism. Uh, we have white supremacists who are interested in our blood and we have to be deliberate 
about accessing resources, allies and accomplices who are going to outshine and outweigh the weight of that because it is coming and it is serious. Uh, give out your social media info. And before you do that, I'd be remiss if I didn't compliment you on your awesome bookshelf behind you. <laughs> I'm into bookshelves, man. <laughs> so go ahead and tell people about it. I'm, I'm a reader, man. I, and I've read, I've read most books on this shelf, many of the books on this shelf. Um, so yeah, I'm on, um, on Twitter at Dr. Grant Jr. I'm on IG at Dr. Grant and I'm on TikTok at DG at Dr. DG Jr. Um, and yeah, follow me, uh, get my book. If you're in higher education, it's on open access so you can get it um, as an ebook for free through your university. Um, it's published as a textbook by Palgrave McMillan. Uh, thanks, Ryan, man. This was great conversation, brother. Appreciate you, sir. All right, thanks for- uh, Are you taking us. a break today at all? No, man, I've got two more to go. I'm sitting here hungry. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I should have I should have planned some lunch or something in here. I need a co-host for the next one or something. <laughs> I've been going straight- <laughs> Somebody through. post- Somebody postmate Ryan some food. Right, right, right. So, <laughs> hey, but Thank you, brother. Thank you, man. Take it easy. You too.